Hello everyone, and welcome to the first exclusive audio feature of The Legacy of John Williams. This is Maurizio Caschetto. I'm the editor of The Legacy of John Williams, a website devoted to celebrate and study the music of Maestro John Williams and its impact over generations of listeners, musicians, and professionals of both the film and music industry around the world. Today, I'm honored to host this two-part podcast featuring a conversation with soundtrack record producer Mike Matesino, who is here with us to celebrate and discuss a brand new John Williams release coming from heroic soundtrack label La La Land Records. It's one of the maestro's most iconic and beloved schools of his entire career. A very special work that since 40 years really makes us believe that a man can fly. Superman the Movie, 40th Anniversary Remastered Edition, is a three-disc set from La La Land Records featuring a full restoration of John Williams' iconic score, assembled and produced by Mike Matesino from recently discovered first-generation masters. It's really a spectacular release, produced with great care and love, and believe me when I say that this score never sounded better than this. Part one of this podcast, we talk with Mike about this new edition, as well as previous incarnation of Superman the movie soundtrack he produced in the past decade. We'll also pay tribute to the great Nick Redman, the legendary soundtrack producer and documentary filmmaker who recently passed away. So, I'm very glad to be here with Mike Matesino. Hi Mike, thank you for being here. Hi Maurizio. Nice to, to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here and hello from uh, a... Uh very lovely afternoon here in Burbank. Joining us in the conversation is a radio presenter and the concert producer Tim Burden, who talked with Mike several times last year in previous podcasts covering many other John Williams releases. So hello Tim and thank you too for being here. Mauricio, how are you? Thanks for inviting me along. Thank you, Tim. 
So we just closed the book on a spectacular 2018, a year that so many great John Williams expanded release, all supervised, assembled and produced by you, Mike. Um, the Cowboys Deluxe Edition, Saving Private Ryan, 20th anniversary, uh, Schindler's List, 25th anniversary, Dracula 2 CD, Deluxe Edition, and of course the impressive seven disc box set, Harry Potter, the John Williams soundtrack collection featuring the three scores composed by John Williams for the first three Harry Potter films. And so now you're returning to an old friend, so to speak, as you already worked on Superman the movie several times. I think your relationship with the score dates back to 20 years ago, am I right? Yes, almost exactly. Because I think the first uh, time I heard about uh, doing Superman for the Rhino label was in 1999, so just about exactly 20 years ago. So let's talk about the Rhino Records release uh, and your work on that, because uh, I think that was probably one of your first major John Williams expanded release, right? Well, the first would be the Star Wars trilogy, two CD sets that came out in conjunction with the special edition theatrical releases in 1997. And I think after that, I did maybe a couple of very old scores by John uh, from the 60s for Film Score Monthly. Um, so I don't know the exact timeline, but I think certainly Superman was the next major one to come up. And uh, I, it, I can't speak about that without talking about my longtime friend and collaborator, Nick Redman, Yes. Who produced that release and whom we just lost a month ago. Yeah. And um, so it's a, a very melancholy time um, to be talking about this again because we've sort of come full circle with it. And I think um, the loss of Nick has been profoundly felt throughout the soundtrack community, throughout anybody involved in film music, certainly here in Hollywood as well as there in London. Um and uh, we're all still healing from that. It's an opportunity to pay tribute to him, speak about him a little bit. I met him in 1993, so over 25 years ago, and we consulted on a few things, and then came Star Wars, which we spent the better part of 1996 working on. And then shortly after that, he was branching out into working for some other studios beyond 20th Century Fox, where he was based, um, as well as helping to launched the Film Score Monthly record label with Lucas Kendall, which continued for many years. So uh, I, I think he had used Star Wars to make a pitch to Rhino, which was a music arm of Warner Brothers at the time and Warner Music, all of which was one company at the time, yeah. to do some of theirs in the same way, commercial expansions. One of the first ones we did was Poltergeist. And then right after that, we did Superman. And it's interesting because it speaks to the evolution of the music business as a whole, and specifically the soundtrack business, because this was um, maybe the peak time for um, major labels to undertake expansions and remasterings of um, orchestral film scores. The success of the Star Wars reissues in 97 really paved the way for that. 
but it really, I think, peaked with Superman, which the Rhino release happened and it did get on the Billboard charts for just all of one week, but it did make it. It did uh, have some significant sales and it had the backing of a full major record label, but at a time when the in industry was very different and, and was about to change almost in an instant when we had uh, Napster and iTunes and all that came on the scene. So, um, so this is, there's that aspect of it, just to how the business evolved. Yes, absolutely. That's very, very interesting. It certainly was a special release for any John Williams fan. Um, a great effort was put into it. It was a beautifully produced two-disc set with great-looking artwork and packaging, in-depth liner notes written by you. Uh, I remember also a nice little quote from Christopher Reeve in the first pages of the booklet. But tell us about your working process on that release, especially about the state of the reels and the tapes you had to work with, because uh, I think this score has a bit of a specific history in that sense, right? It is quite fascinating, the history of this. Um, but in terms of uh, the packaging and all that, Rhino, as we all know, I'm sure, really had a focus on sort of appealing to collectibles and yes. really having a feeling of nostalgia, tapping into nostalgia. Um, they've done that with the, sort of their, their pop compilations and such as well. They, but they did put some efforts into the package design and everything with the nice um, glossy outer cardboard O-card that we had on it. Very, very classy. I thought it just looked really, really nice. But I remember when Nick said, well, the music for Superman is in. And I went over to studio in Burbank to listen to some of these roles being put up. And he says, this is all we have. It basically are the dubbing units for making the picture, which means that the music's already cut to match the film. We were lucky in that it also included music not used in the film, but basically the edits were already there and it was all in sort of a checkerboard pattern where a portion of a cue would be on one reel and then it would continue where it left off after the edit on the next reel and then maybe sometimes a third reel and then back to the first and so all of that had to be transferred and then I would have to come in and stitch it all together. And Nick asked me, can you do this? Because I don't think we have quite everything. So it really was a perfect example of what I call a Frankenstein project. <laughs> we have to actually take the, you know, different pieces and make it into a, a whole living thing. And so we were fortunate to find a not so great sounding quarter inch reel that had some extra cues on it. And then we had both six track dubbing stems and a three track dubbing stem that was conformed to the television version. So that uh, helped fill some holes here and there where they actually used music in that that wasn't used in the theatrical version. Right, yes. And then we got uh, Warner Brothers Records to provide a transfer of the original soundtrack album master. And that was still going to be necessary for quite a lot of it. And I went in and sort of just mapped out how to possibly assemble the most complete 
version of it from source material, uh, none of which was basically intact. It all had to be stitched together and um, sonically smoothed over as much as we possibly could. But we were already dealing with material that was three or four generations down from the original, from the get-go. But still, you know, uh, it was a relatively naive time. <laughs> and uh, we were grateful to have anything and grateful to have cues that we'd never heard before finally released. And um, for what it was at the time, it was a perfectly valid release that we were all very, very proud of. So, um, and we're confident that we were using the only material that had survived. So yeah, I, I think that it, it still sounds pretty good, I think, for the year that came out. And I remember I was very, very, very happy when I got that release, you know, back in 2000. I think it was one of the latest CDs that I bought uh, in store, actually, before the, you know, the, the online retail era, actually. And right. I remember it was an import and a very expensive import, <laughs> if I remember well. But I was so finally so happy to have, you know, the helicopter rescue queue and and the death of Jonathan Kent. And I think it's even more impressive because of the things that you just said about your working process and the fact that you had to assemble the final product from so many different elements and sometimes not great quality elements. Well, that's good. 20 years later to know that that's great. Because uh, I'm glad you, you touched on the, the kind of presentation of that, because absolutely, I, I agree, there was a lot of effort put into it. Even, you know, the, the smallest but most effective point of having a sticker on the very front saying, two CDs of John Williams' triumphant score. You know, it was something, yeah. it was just really, it was celebratory. And it, it, and it was kind of one of these releases to shout about. And, and I mean, obviously, the alternate, uh, opening and that was quite something I think all of us at the time were quite excited to hear that I recall because obviously that was new material none of us had heard before 
and then like the likes of leaving home which was horribly kind of warbled and badly um a bad sound at the crescendo and then suddenly we had the leaving home in a in a better presented form as i'm sure you mike as a producer you must have really uh enjoyed having that kind of fixed i didn't actually remember um that that I used uh, the different source for that, but I, but I guess I did. Um, there are there is. Well, you fixed it somehow. Yeah. There's a very bad analog edit in it, and um, uh, which I addressed even further on the newest release. But um, you know, so there were there were all kinds of challenges, and we can talk about the way that they recorded and the way these did the they did these things. But of course, not all of that came to light <laughs> until the last year. But uh, yeah. the, to go back to that original opening, though, here's the interesting thing: is we still don't know what that went with. Well, yeah, because you can't you can't sync it, can you? To no, because I remember trying to sync it to the film at the time, and it's like no, <laughs> it just doesn't. No, work. It's, it doesn't work. No, it yeah, can't, it can't work. It obviously yeah. was a shorter title sequence, yeah. some different kind of opening than the one that we got in the finished film, and. Um, it's funny how the filmmakers do these things and then when something gets chucked entirely, eventually they completely forget all about it. <laughs> so if you ask Donner or if you ask Stuart Baird or if you ask Elias Salkind, they have no recollection of a different opening. <laughs> but yet I think there's probably somewhere in the Warner Brothers vaults uh, some black and white work print of some early cut. Which leads us to the whole subject of the Warner Brothers vaults, because here is what happened. We were in the home stretch of preparing that release, which came out almost exactly 19 years ago, mid-February of 2000. And at the same time, the work was just starting to begin on what became known as the Superman Special Edition for uh, home video and yeah. a limited theatrical release that happened at the time. It was actually supposed to be much uh, more um, extended theatrical release, but the studio pulled the plug at the last moment. Yeah, I, I remember a trailer on, on the internet, actually. But uh, they had done a different cut of the film that added nine minutes in and um, completely remixed the soundtrack for the film, meaning the actual film audio, which is another subject that we could go into. But... Uh, in conjunction with that, they found six-track scoring masters um, for the music, which was one generation higher than what anything that I had been working on or working with for the Rhino set. And those were played for me on the day the Rhino set came out. And I heard music that we didn't have because it wasn't used in the film. Oh, how frustrating. You must have been so frustrated. Yeah, so it was a really 
really devastating day to know that this material had just shown up on the day that uh, our CD hit the stores. So they went ahead and also did a isolated score track for the Blu-ray that came out. Um, yes. But it was limited to the music that's actually in the film, and there was some maybe some bonus things also. That's kind of where you had to go for some alternatives to the, the Rhino version um, for many years. And then a few things sort of happened after that. Um, one of the things that happened is that after the uh, AOL was cut loose from the Time Warner world, Time Warner sold off its music group. And so Warner Music Group became a, a completely separate entity with no affiliation whatsoever with Warner Brothers Studios. That happened in 2004. As a result of that, the music that was on the original soundtrack album was controlled by one company and anything that wasn't was controlled by another company. And it was that situation ha also happened with Universal, where the same year, 2004, Universal Music Group was spun off from the parent studio as a separate company. And so now, in order to do expanded scores with those two companies, that means any album that has ever been out on any Warner Brothers label, Warner, Electra, Atlantic, any of those labels, and any universal label like DECA and Capital, EMI, and anybody they ultimately absorbed. Right. In order to expand any score on any of those labels, somebody had to do two licenses, one with the record label, one with the studio that produced the film and had, had the music. And that, and that opened the door for all these specialty labels in the 2000s to come in and uh, do dual licenses and sell these things as limited editions in a specialty market where um, record stores were entirely going away and the whole entire, entire world became about um, digital downloads and then later streaming. Um, you know, with the songs for a dollar twenty nine piece. All right. So that the 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 really the specialized soundtrack market and the labels that put these releases out is a direct result of what happened to the music business as a whole. So Film Score Monthly was at the forefront of all this, and they had started very speculatively with a few titles, but it be it just became a thing. And so then Lucas Kendall started doing hundreds and hundreds of releases, working with most of the studios. Um, for a long time, Universal and Paramount were completely closed. Um, but there was a lot happening with the Warners and with MGM and with Fox and with Sony. So suddenly uh, us score collectors were getting lots of things that we never thought would see the light of day. So around comes the mid-2000s and... Lucas looks into Superman with um, Warner Brothers Studios and Warner Brothers Records and finds out that it is actually possible and engaged me in 2006 to start work on what became the eight-disc Superman, the music box set. And we all know that um, the big discovery of that set was the score for Superman 4. Which I, right. think is, which I think is phenomenal. And um, yeah. nobody had ever heard a note of it outside of the film. We found yeah. that basically the long version of the movie was scored and we were able to kind of create that. So musically, you can kind of hear what the original vision of that picture was. Yeah. Yeah. 
versions of Superman 2 and 3, which, you know, for more than 20 years, again, nobody had ever heard in better quality. Nobody had ever heard the rest of the music. And then for the first score, we were actually given the transfer session that I had heard in 2000. I was actually handed that piece of data, the transfer of that six-track music, um, was given to me in 2006 or seven, and that became the source for an updated version of Superman the movie by John Williams to um, include as part of this box set. So that gave us um, something of a quality leap um, and at least some additional things that you could not find um, even on the DVD isolated score. And that was a massive project. It didn't come out till February of 2008, so 11 years ago. And from beginning to end, the whole entire thing took almost two years to do. Much of the time spent on this massive, I think, 156-page book that came in that, because that went on forever and ever and ever with us proofreading that. And suddenly we realized we're <laughs> feeling more like book editors than soundtrack producers. <laughs> So uh, at the end of the day, maybe Lucas re resented or regretted doing something so elaborate because it just took a lot out of us to get through there. And when I look at it now, I can hardly believe that we actually did that. I think Lucas Scandal actually said something like, I'm not a book publisher. <laughs> I won't do that again. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I remember that too. And um, <laughs> do you remember the ridiculous uh, and typical overdramatic outcry? Because I think the first one of books fell apart. Do you remember <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a very bad printer that was not doing a very good stitching job. And, um, right. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> but actually, that's a, a a beautiful piece of liner notes, and and actually, it's it's really a mighty book. Absolutely. Yes. So. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, and um, we just we put so much work into it, and interviewed people, and just it's just chock full of information, and that's it's still valid because uh, even in the new release that's about to come out. Um, we don't have all of that information in there. So that's actually still um, the best place to go for a, a total thorough history of the music for the Superman films. Yeah, I, were you able to also to talk with Ken Thorne or Sandy Courage back then for the liner notes or, or maybe to some of their relatives? Ken definitely, uh, he became a friend visited with him and his wife Linda many times and they were lovely people charming I loved hanging around with them and hearing all these old stories about working in the UK in, in the 60s and um you know the uh, yeah the Beatles and Max Bygraves story all the stuff it was he was great 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 fun funny funny witty guy um and Sandy Courage was uh, already in a nursing home at the time when the project started so I didn't actually meet him but um, did become very close friends with his daughter. And she sort of kind of facilitated a lot of this and um, had all of his journals where he kept track of every job he ever had and every um, cue he ever wrote. And uh, that proved invaluable, not only on this, but on several projects subsequently. And, um, you know, she helped me with the recollections that they all went over there and lived there in uh, Chelsea for whatever it was, two months or so while they were working on it. Um, there were sessions in Germany that didn't quite work out and they continued yeah. in London. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of recollections there. And he did actually get to hear the final assembly and, and see the finished box. Passed away shortly after that. 
and then uh, I put together the uh, photo a photo montage um, that was shown at the memorial service. Yeah, that's that's lovely. Um, so so that was that was very gratifying. And and yes, um, basically anybody we could find. Um, there was a lot going on with the Superman films at the time. We not only had the um, special edition Superman the movie activity, but then they did that Superman two the Richard Donner cut. Yeah. There was a big premiere of that that I went to, introduced myself to everybody that I could there, and uh, became uh, in contact uh, with many, many of the filmmakers. So, um, so they all gave quotes and uh, um, and participated in that way in um, sort of putting that chronicle together of that book that was included in the box set, which I think is. Um, in as much as the Rhino release represented, in my mind, the sort of the peak of major labels commercially putting out expanded soundtracks, I think that the what we call the Blue Box represented the sort of the peak of the specialized soundtrack market releases because I feel like that that 2008 was sort of a crescendo of that. I don't know. I think it's sort of been a diminishing market over the last decade, um, which is too bad in a way because we've been able to do more projects, more studios have opened up, technology has improved, we're able to um, save material that in the past was considered unsalvageable, um, we're able to make things sound better um, and get rid of problems a little bit more easily. But I think, as I recall, this was also when I really started seeing the impact of sort of an online um, message forum type of community that was emerging that kind of um, could coalesce into like this sort of big disembodied voice um, speaking its mind on the internet. And I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances, but there was some kind of leak or some kind of advance word that there was some box coming and it became or somebody announced that the color of the box was blue so everybody assumed it was going to be superman and yeah. we were waiting 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 yeah, uh, to yeah, see yeah. if that's what it was really going to be and i just remember the uh, um you know a lot of us on the inside were kind of stressed out about that and just waiting for that shoe to drop and then i think like the screen archive server such as servers were a decade ago just froze from the sudden influx of orders for this $120 item. Yeah. So, um, it, so to me, in my mind, that represents kind of like a, a real uh, crescendo, like a market high yeah. for, um, the, for the, those, the niche label catalog score releases. It was quite an event.
No, I was just going to say, that from memory, there was two runs, wasn't there? Because there was, uh, Lucas managed to secure basically another set of 3,000 copies. Is that what happened? The, the, the first 3,000 sold out pretty soon. Is that right, Mike? Yes, and so we had to change the, I think, just the booklet. I think we had, it's like um, a version two or something was written on it somewhere. Yes, to indicate that's right. that it was a second printing, yes. or um, we made one little change. He licensed three thousand; they sold very, very quickly, and then he relicensed it as a, as a second run. And uh, you know, and that's only now just finally sold out. We all agree one of the biggest, uh, other than Superman Four, one of the biggest finds of that was the alternate dome opens, which is quite exciting to hear, wasn't it? I mean. That was the key cue, wasn't it? Yes, although we knew we, we knew at the time, uh, I was just very, very grateful that they chose to not include that in the bonus music on the Superman DVD. Oh, yeah. However, it was used quite liberally in the Richard Donner cut. Oh, every scene, yeah. <laughs> crazy editorial mix that was done. You know, it was just such a crazy music edit in that thing. I mean, when, when I went to the screening, I'm like, oh, there it is. And he's and he uses it like four of the times so um you know they milked it so well but people have never heard it clean so at least, uh, when, when we if the opportunity comes to do it again um we, we at least have that so we did said a, a, a sort of an uptick in quality although maybe there's some people that still felt that the rhino version actually sounded better and that might just be a difference in the mastering choices uh, danny hirsch who did many many projects for nick redmond over the years mastered the rhino version and uh doug schwartz mastered the fsm box set but uh but still to me it was it was it, it, it was more seamless it didn't have the need for um, so much Frankensteining 
um, we actually could use basically one element all the way through, and it was um, more or less consistent, although certain things were simply not there. Uh, still didn't have um, an uncut love theme from Superman. Still didn't have March of the Villains, thing, and those still had to come from the album master. So there was still a degree of things that had to come from some of the sources, but... Um, and I don't think we even had the... Um, Hmm, I'm trying to remember if we had the, the, the first prelude and main title. We may not have even had that. And that might have still had to come from that backup role that we found in 99. There was also that um, fascinating alternate planet Krypton with a different key. Yeah. Um, where you actually uh, you actually hear the, the trumpets kind of fluff the crescendo. But, I mean, it, it works. Um, it actually works as a bit of added kind of, you know, drama. But um, that, was, that was interesting to hear that alternate. Yeah, and it's obviously designed to come out of the original main title. So the whole entire opening sequence of the film was going to be a little bit different all the way up through the uh, the, the Kryptonian villains getting um, assumed into the Phantom Zone. Um, all of that would have been somewhat different. It's kind of you could almost call it a kind of lilt, um, just to give a bit of a punch. I mean, it's you know it is it's subtle, but uh, you know what a what a brass section, which we could probably have a whole show. To that. <laughs> oh God! Yes, I mean, they were just unparalleled. The LSO of that era, their brass section particularly, was just unmatched yeah, yeah. anywhere in the world. Yeah, Super Ben is probably one of their tops. I think of the LSO brass section of that late seventies, early eighties era. I think. And how, how amazing that John Williams was on hand to bring them scores like that and Star Wars at that time, um, where, where the brass is so important.
that Superman was probably the a score that was written with the LSO in mind, actually, in the writing phase, I think, because he was already aware that he would have used the, the London Symphony. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. He certainly was, after Star Wars, actively looking for more opportunities to continue that relationship and to work in London because he loved it at the time. Um, and had been, um, even since the late 60s, early 70s, he spent quite a lot of time there for both Goodbye Mr. Chips and Fiddler on the Roof and Jane Eyre. Yeah. And then when his good friend Andre Previn became music director, well, uh, that very strong friendship um, just sort of made everything click. And then beginning with Star Wars, since the film had been made in the UK, um, it was um, a natural step to also record the music there. So, uh, and that led to um, other things like the doing the album sessions of the Fury there, and then yeah. Superman, then Dracula, then Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Monsignor, and Return of the Jedi. So uh, it was a really good, long run of very, very strong scores, um, and um, you know, recorded both at uh, Anvil, which was then de demolished, and then uh, subsequently at uh, Abbey Road. So a real good, very important, I think, um, historical period in um, film scores recorded in, in London. I think it was a very, very special time. And I think it's, it was also a, a very special relationship that between John Williams and the London Symphony, because I think that the fact that he got to know very well that orchestra and those players, especially like Maurice Murphy on trumpet, uh, that, you know, land those scores to have a certain sound and a certain gesture in the writing from John, because it was really something special for, for him to work with such a distinguished group of musicians like the LSO of, of that time. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, Maurizio. very much so. You're right. I mean, when you think about Monsignor, you know, he wrote that especially with Morris Murphy in mind. Camden, who was the um, the chairman of the LSO uh, around that era, uh, you know, he, he would have been playing as well as an instrumentalist with you know on those scores and and then David Cripps, those French horn solos, you know, David Cripps was very much inspired and encouraged by Williams to move to America because he now, I think, in the mid eighties, he he moved to America to to play horn over there and you know to to think uh, of the you know generally genuinely kind of touching these and changing these musicians lives i mean that's that's what he is is also responsible for not just giving uh, audiences that pleasure but really making big changes mm -hmm. 
And I think we saw um, at the concert at the Royal Albert Hall last October, where Williams took ill and couldn't conduct it, we actually saw that that continued. I think even the present members of the orchestra absolutely feel very, very profoundly about that legacy and their connection to John Williams and that they genuinely yes, loved playing a full yeah. evening concert of uh, his work. Yeah, they played their hearts out on that night. I I was there too, so it was a really, a really special night. Right, and you, we were all together earlier that day, so that was yeah. a very special uh, occasion, I think, for all of us, especially in his absence, it, uh, for us to sort of carry forward, as Tim and I spoke in the previous podcast, and, um, uh, you know, continuing with a um, sort of an attitude of celebration of... Uh, this extraordinary body of work and a um, very, very important connection with that particular orchestra. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that uh, we are all very happy to to have seen him recently uh, up again in very good form in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago with Gustavo Dudamel conducting the LA Phil for a night of celebration of his music. Yeah, looking very healthy, yes. Yes, he uh, paid attention to his doctors and uh, stayed home and rested through all of November and December, and then, uh, um, and then was was fine. So, a bit of a recovery time. But then, by uh, um, early January, he was uh, he was doing great and um, taking it a bit easy. This year, he's not going to conduct the uh, Boston concerts this summer, but he will host. And same thing for the Hollywood Bowl concerts. Um, and that's a lot of it is to do with um, kind of uh, reserving his energy for the Star Wars Episode Nine sessions. Yeah, pretty big work too that he has to do, I guess. It's a big school. <laughs> it's a big finale, that isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I like to call it it's Williams Ninth. No, you know, like Beethoven's Ninth, Mahler's <laughs> oh, <very> Ninth. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Although I'll have to tell you something. I mean, very everybody good. took a little statement he made in an interview um, where he said, um, "I'd like to complete that one." as meaning that he would not do any more. Mm -hmm. But that is in fact not what he meant. All he was saying was, I would like to complete that. But uh, should there be more regular episodes of Star Wars that are coming in the short term um, that they wanted him for, uh, he would not rule it out hmm. as long as he was able to do it. So the press sort of latched on to that little quote and said, oh, this will be his final Star Wars score. In his mind, it's not. You know, I mean, I think when he's, you know, 150, he'll, he'll walk in and conduct his own funeral <laughs> march. So yes. um, just, as I feel like, I, just as I feel like Olivia de Havilland's going to show up at the 250th anniversary of Gone with the Wind and say, here I am. <laughs> There's some people who just, uh, you know, are just going to keep going. <laughs> yes, we, we, we live in hope. <laughs> yeah. So if he has to scale back on the conducting, I'm just absolutely fine with that. I mean, he was even, uh, you know, sitting in bed writing during his recovery because he doesn't like to stop writing as long. I would rather him do that. Mm. You know? Although it was nice uh, at the Saturday night of the Gustavo concert that was just done here at, the, at Disney Hall. He did take the podium and conducted his variations of Happy Birthday. Oh, great. For Gustavo. So that was great.
Well, going back to Superman, so uh, we were talking about the peak of the major labels with the 2000s Rhino Superman the movie release, and then the peak of the soundtrack niche label market with Filmscore Monthly's Blue Box Superman the Music box set. So, uh, and then we are in 2019 to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Superman the movie, which was actually December last year, but you know, we are still very close to that. Uh, with a new release from Land Records, again supervised and produced by Mike Matissino. And so, Mike, why did you go back once again to Superman the movie for a new release? Well, um, as I said, in 2006 I was given the data that had been transferred in 2000. So I was already working with six-year-old data um, to do the work on Superman for that box set. And so at the very least, I thought, since in the intervening years, we have had um, advancements in digital transfer technology where we're going higher and higher resolution, which you can get if you're starting with analog material on tape. And um, the recent work I had been doing, particularly with um, Bruce Botnick on Star Trek, the motion picture, and then mm -hmm. E.T., the extraterrestrial, where we were doing much higher resolution transfers and not not only getting better results but knowing that the materials preserved in a much much better way um i thought well is there any opportunity to do superman over again and at least start with um a high resolution capture of those six track scoring masters um which as i said i'd been working with data transferred uh, in 2000 which was barely higher than what mm. you would normally get on a compact disc i wanted to get something at higher resolution so when it looked like um, the terms of the fsm box were expiring after a 10-year period um and la la land records had a good relationship with warner music group and warner studios um the thought come came up that well could you break the box set apart and put out individual score releases and um, they were able to make that deal and we did them in reverse order so we had the first standalone release of superman 4 come out um last year um i guess it was sometime in the middle of the year followed by a collection of superman 2 and 3 put together as a three disc set we did that for a few reasons um Number one, Superman 3 would not have been a strong seller on its own. Um, number two, you're talking about the same composer, the same director, mm. the same studio, same engineer. So much of it was the same um, that it made sense. And they had been put together before um, on a Japanese CD release way back when the original albums of Superman 2 and 3 were put together. Oh, yeah, I remember that. The other reason was... Um, we knew that we were going to do Superman the movie over again, and John Williams's management would have said no to including any of the source music. Okay. And um, especially since none of it was really used in the theatrical version of the film itself. A lot of it ended up in the TV version. But um, there's a dislike for that material, um, <laughs> depending, on, in, depending on what... Uh, idiom it's written in so um that was going to get cut and 
I knew that everybody would sort of be furious if we came out with a new version and something from the box that had been left off. Right. So the compromise that I proposed was that it could it could live alongside source music from the other two movies and be part of the collection on that separate release. And that was acceptable. And so that's why it's there. And um, But everybody just needs to know that it will likely never see the light of day again because it's owned by Warner Brothers Studios, but they do not have album rights to Superman the movie. So therefore they can't put it out on their own digitally or any other way. So if you are interested in source music from Superman, most of which was not used, and you're a John Williams completist, then you are going to have to have that Superman 2 and 3 set. Superman 1, the plan was to come out at the end of the year, um, just in time for the 40th anniversary. Ultimately, it was delayed mainly because of the Harry Potter set. So to have added that on top of Harry Potter and Schindler's List, it just would have been way, way too much. As you pointed out at the beginning, your Harry Potter was seven discs, Schindler's List was two, Saving Private Ryan was one, Dracula was two, mm-hmm. Cowboys was one. So there was a lot of discs and a lot of writing on my part that basically commandeered all of 2018. So uh, we ultimately decided, since we still had approval time and all that to go through, which um, you know can be a little bit slow, um, to let's hold off um, on Superman till early, early part of 2019. So 2018 started with me going to Warner Brothers Studios and saying, this is happening this year. I'd like to get the six-track music retransferred. And so my buddy there in archival mastering called it up on his computer, and he turned the screen around and said, okay, well, here's what we have. Tell me what element you're looking for. So I look, and I see listed all of these two-inch tapes the one another column next to them says Anvil, and the column next to that has nineteen seventy eight dates. And I said, "What are these?" I didn't know we had two inch on Superman. And the answer was, "Well, these had come in in the interim; they just had never been barcoded." And um, I'm like, "Well, this looks like the original scoring masters." So we speculatively brought a couple in and. Um, that's in fact what they were. And it was an unbelievable find. Um, they, there were many, many roles and, um, it was actually rather than ship them in, Warner Brothers actually got the, the people who work in the vaults in Kansas, the middle of the U S in the salt mines where these things are kept to basically take photograph of each one so we could see what they all were and figure out which ones to call in. And um, there were a series of master roles that had basically all the cues assembled and then 
what they were calling the rejects rolls, which was basically everything that uh, was left over, what they had done in that time, which is to me an appalling idea, but this is what they did for quality. Um, Eric Tomlinson and his team actually performed the edits on the first generation multi-track tape. Oh. So um, somebody then had the uh, foresight to take those assembled master rolls and duplicate them uh, at, at CTS studios. So we had um, backups, but the master tapes, the performance edits are already built in right in the first generation material. So, but on, on the studio side, these were not barcoded with any sort of logic. They're barcoded as in just grab the nearest tape, assign it a number and send it off. So not until you called them in and actually looked at them, could you assemble them and see all the recording dates, every what was on what role, what had been spliced out of what role. I mean, so there was still a lot of sleuthing that uh, Neil Balk and I did together in creating a new um, spreadsheet and figuring all this out and, um, and then figuring out what to transfer so that we didn't spend, you know, overspend on the transfer bills and just did what we needed and made sure we had everything. Um, so that was a lot of um, remaining pieces of the puzzle um, on the on the recording of this score um, came into place. We already had quite a lot of documentation. Um, a very key piece of that being a binder at the Warner Music Library of the uh, spotting notes kept by the music editor, Bob Hathaway, whose um, widow found it in the, their attic after he passed and thought to call Warner Brothers and ask them, Did, would you like this? And they said, yes. And so that's why we had a binder of all the spotting notes on Superman. Putting that in, in, in together with actually looking at the boxes, um, just, um, as I said, it completed a puzzle uh, and we finally, it seems like we were able to answer every question that um, we had about the recording of the score. And so we set about transferring in high resolution the actual tapes that ran through the machine recording the London Symphony at Anvil in 1978. And so now suddenly we're dealing with first generation material. And it just was mind blowing. In, um, you know, more than I'd ever imagined. So it then became um, quite a meticulous year-long process to um, once again put it together and assemble um, master, get it approved by Mr. Williams, and, um, and finally um, come out with it. So I think and hope that uh, this is actually the last word on the subject because I can't I really can't think of anywhere to go from here other than hiring the London Symphony Orchestra and having them play door to door to door <laughs> so uh, this is it you're actually now going to hear the highest possible quality of that original recording it was just a, a stunning find not an easy thing to work with because one of the things that happens when you get material of that high quality is you hear all of the faults a little bit more mm. and you can hear what's really really going on um it took me some time to figure out the how these tracks were laid out because they also changed from session to session in some cases and um things moved around but eventually i found out found where 
sort of the basic six track mix was and then you had um little um spot mics of other things where um something would need to be brought in or brought down and there was a lot of abcd comparisons of uh the original film mix the original album and then what we had um for the rhino and for the fsm sets so those it was a very very involved process of uh, going through it with a several fine tooth combs until um i felt uh that it was absolutely right and that we we listened over and over and kept making adjustments until um in at least in my mind it's as good as it will ever be yeah it, it really sounds really really spectacular because i think it never sounded better really for uh, listening on your home stereos there's a crystal clear quality you can hear so much detail in the performance I think that the stereo image is even wider. It's like sitting in front of the orchestra, really. But it's an astonishing revelation for me because it's a score that I know very well, but listened in this very high quality format is it's amazing. I'd love to talk a little bit with you about the legacy of Nick Redman, actually, as we were talking at the beginning, because, uh, as you were saying, he was such a, an important figure in the soundtrack business, and I never met him personally, but I had a few exchanges over email over the last few years sometimes, 
and he was always kind, always generous, very encouraging about many things. And from what I gather, he was a really a kind of a mentor and father figure for many of you working in a soundtrack business like you and Lucas Kendall and many others. Well, um, to, to me, more of a brother. Um, but I mean, certainly uh, a mentor in, in the sense of um, you know, coming to Hollywood, having a lot of passion and sticking with it and really doing something no one else had done. And, you know, just in terms of the work ethic and the integrity, that's where the, the mentor aspect uh, comes into it. And um, just really, really deeply cared about what he was doing and was just intensely passionate about it and just wanted to um, make sure that as much was saved as possibly could be saved. And I don't know that when he came here, he was necessarily thinking that it would grow into what it did and that we'd get this many thousands of scores and other producers coming in and sort of following in his footsteps and in, in getting things done. So, but I mean, I think overall he was pleased about that. You know, I just, uh, I remember those you know, very long days in a, sitting in a dubbing stage at 20th Century Fox, you know, paying full fees, you know, to um, mix scores back then. And he would say, he would look at me and say, what's the matter? I'm like, well, this isn't quite right. And I just, you know, it's so frustrating. I'm trying to communicate this. And he supported me fully when I, said, you know, I just think that this will go a lot better if I learn how to do this myself. Learn how to do it and, and buy the equipment and um, do this more efficiently. And he always was totally supportive of that. Just was a good, genuine person. It's like you could count on him and you could talk to him about anything. He would listen if you just wanted to um, complain about something, if you just, you know, um, I just, I miss him terribly. The, it, it felt like for 25 years, I walked into a room and flipped the switch and a light came on and I never thought a thing about it. And then one day I flipped the switch, nothing happens. And my brain just short circuits and it was like, well, what do you mean? There's no light. Where, where's that light? It always came on. Why should, what's, you know, suddenly it's just gone. It's just like that. It's just really just, um, sort of a gaping hole. We just, uh, all feel it very, very profoundly, but. I think that he touched so many lives and inspired so many people, I think professionally, that what he brought is still alive in all of us who do that. And that will continue. And, and that's what I think he would want. And so that's what we're going to do. Thank you.
Thank you to Mike Metesino and Tim Burton for joining me in part one of this podcast. Coming soon, in the next few days, part two, featuring more music from Superman the Movie, including material never heard before, and more talk about this score and its profound legacy. Superman the Movie, 40th Anniversary Soundtrack Edition, is available to order at lalalandrecords.com. is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com.